Revelation 19 and 20. 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. And uh, finish this on Sunday. We'll actually be doing 21 and 22. So a week from tonight, we'll be starting the book of Hosea. We'll be starting fresh with that. And you'll be amazed just how much Hosea actually ties into everything uh, we've been studying. As we're getting ready to finish up the book, remember that um, um, most mainline Christian churches do not take a literal view about what we're studying tonight. Mainline Protestantism and uh, Roman Catholicism uh, take an allegorical view of the book. They don't take it literally, as we do. Um, Many of them are amillennial, um, means they don't believe in a millennium at all. And remember that when we started the book, chapter 1, verse 3, it says this is the only book that says, if you will study it, I will give you a blessing. This book is special. It's blessed. It begins with a blessing, and then it ends with a warning. And um, the warning is, don't add anything to it, and don't take anything away from it. Because if you're due... Um, Uh, The Lord said he would add to that individual the plagues that are actually written in the book. So, uh, we've been talking about in Daniel how there's certain information that our adversary just does not want us to know. That's what Daniel chapter 10 is all about. The warfare between Michael and, remember, the prince of of Persia. And um, information that we'll be studying was held up for three full weeks because they did, uh, the enemy does not want you to un- have an understanding of what lies ahead for you. So that's what we're diving into tonight in chapter 19. Again, the key verse to understand the book of Revelation is chapter 1, written in 96 AD. John was told to write the things that he had seen. That's chapter 1, and that is the glorified Lord in his body, then he was told to write the things that are, present tense, that's the church age, that's you and I right now here tonight. We're living in this, some people like to call it a dispensation, it's a period of time, um, roughly 2,000 years, and it started with um, Pentecost, and it's going to end with the rapture of the church. And then I believe immediately after that, we have the appearance of Moses and Elijah. God always leaves a witness. And we were told over and over again that it's a seven-year period of time. And that seven-year period of time is between chapter 6 of Revelation. The first verse is the Antichrist arriving on the scene. And um, it goes all the way through the end of chapter 16 where we um, were studying uh, the last, last week, or two weeks before. And then we had chapter 17 and 18, the judgment on a religious system. This will be comprised of people that will all come together to Rome, the city that the Christianity um, will be headquartered, that, that city is Rome. And in chapter 18, there's another city that's called Babylon. 
And uh, it is an economic, it's an economic empire that have seduced um, the kings of the world, the people of the world. It has to be a port city. And um, if you want more info on that, I would encourage you to get the, the DVDs on it. But 17 and 18 is, is not in a chronological order. The end of the tribulation is the last verse of chapter 16. 17 and 18 is only information that happened during the, um, chapter 16. So that brings us to, if we just forget 17 and 18, go from chapter 16 to 19, now the chronological order is going to be the second coming of the Lord. And... Um, um, let's read the first six verses, and I'll stop and we'll comment on, on that. Now, after these things, what things? Well, after the things of chapter 16. After the earth is plummeted with uh, hailstones weighing 100 pounds each. Um, my garage, I have a 100-year-old um, black walnut tree. And... Walnuts, you know, they can get to be about that big. And I've learned over the years, don't park my car underneath that tree a certain time of year. Because I have dents all over the hood to prove it's not a good idea. But it ends, that is the final judgment. The earth is completely devastated. No islands, no cities. Uh, Planet Earth has... uh, come to an end, and then last um, Sunday, uh, we talked about this 45-day period of time after the earth is judged and comes to an end, and we were told that after that 45-day period of time, anybody who makes it to the 1,335th day is going to be blessed. I took you to Matthew 25, and when you have the end of the tribulation period, there's still going to be people alive, some saved and some with the mark of the beast. But now we're going into what we call the millennium. That's in chapter 20. It is a literal 1,000-year period of time that is the main focus of the Old Testament, the kingdom that was promised by the prophets that would would um, that they've been waiting for. And so as we get into this tonight, we're uh, past that 45-day period of judgment, and now the hallelujahs break out. Let's pick it up and read the first six verses. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude of heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again they said, Hallelujah! And her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, 
Praise our God, all ye his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as if it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, in these first six verses, um, this, this is really amazing. Because what we have something here is this is the first time they've been utter, able to utter the word hallelujah. Um, this word occurs four times in the first six verses. This is the only occurrence of it in the New Testament. It is reserved for the final victory. Uh, it's interesting to note that Alleluia occurs frequently in the book of Psalms, and it means praise the Lord. And whenever I'm in, I'm in Haiti, it doesn't matter if it's Creole or wherever you're traveling. When I used to travel to India a lot, every, every state had a different dialect. But one word is always the same in every language, and that's hallelujah. So if you say hallelujah, Everybody, no matter what, where you're from, they know what that means. Because it's the same in every language. So, Alleluia isn't in the New Testament, except here, and only in these four verses. Um, Psalm 150, the very last one, um, I like to point that out for anybody that has problems with people that um, I personally, I think the old hymns, you can't beat them as far as the depth and the richness of the writing and the quality of it. Having said that, you have people over here that said this is the only way it it should be. And then on the other hand, you have uh, some of the contemporary Christian music that's coming out today, uh, Hillsong in particular. There might be some good songs that come out of there, but um, um, I don't believe it's anywhere near worship. I believe it's self-glorification. And I believe that the attention is drawn to the, the person instead of to the Lord. Now, the job of the worship leader is to get the peoples to worship the Lord. And they have to be doing that themselves. So having said that, there's people who have a problem with contemporary Christian music. And I do too, but not all of it. I mean, we are super blessed to have our worship team here at Calvary of Appleton. I've had some very talented musicians come through here that just says, just don't talk for a second. I'm listening to, do you realize how good those guys are out there? And I said, yes, I do. (laughs) And for those who have a problem with contemporary Christian music when it's done the right way, you need to read Psalm 50, 150. Make a joyful noise. Do it with loud, clanging cymbals. Do it with drums and harps. And make a joyful noise unto the Lord. When Love Song first came out, uh, the drummer just came out and did a drum solo that blew me away. And then he just got up afterwards, and they were clowning him. He goes, no, 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 no. (laughs) That was to the Lord. I was making a joyful noise, and I was playing, and he quoted Psalm 150. So if you have a problem with contemporary Christian music, then you're going to have to deal with Psalm 150. Should I tell a personal story about Dave Hunt? I guess I already let it out of the bag. Dave is old school. I love him to death. And uh, we had uh, Richie Ferre uh, from 
Polko in Buffalo Springfield. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor in Boulder. He was leading, he had his worship team here. And the song that he was playing happened to be a psalm. It wasn't his song. He was playing a psalm. But he was doing it uh, Poco style and Buffalo Springfield style, but it was to the Lord, and it was driving Dave Hunt crazy. <laughs> and so here's, here's, here's Dave Hunt. God bless him. I love him with all my heart. He tries to tactfully pull Richie aside and talk to him about his music. And Richie would say, yeah, Dave, it's Psalm 32. <laughs> and so it's really a matter of the heart when it gets into this. But hallelujah means praise the Lord. Now, you're going to have gifts and people are going to acknowledge a gift that you have. And... Uh, what do you say? You know, we need to be gracious. You need to say thank you and all that sort of stuff. But we need to know that what do we have that hasn't been given to us? No matter what your skill, what, what credit can you take for it? It's only been given to you. So every good and precious gift comes from above. So how can we dare take any credit for anything? And when you see, that's what the scripture teaches. I believe only real humility can be exercised when you realize that you're nothing. <laughs> and when the Bible says no good thing comes out of you, that's exactly what it means. Paul says, it's not that I don't want to. Romans 7 says, I wish I could. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And so it's being honest with that. But when we get to the place where we see that it's the Lord that's doing it, then we get to say what word? Hallelujah. Go ahead, give it a shot. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And um, I think it was Larry Norman that came and put the one-way sign, but that, that goes way back. That was the symbol of the Jesus movement. So in the first six verses, what we have is rejoicing over the harlot. In contrast, what we're coming up to is a marriage supper of the Lamb. So... The great tribulation is over. The church is about to be united in marriage to the Lord. And in verse 2, this rejoicing over the harlot. Now we have the harlot contrasted with the bride of Christ. This religious system um, that existed, that the Antichrist destroyed, um, is now... Over and they're rejoicing over it. Verse 6, it says, The Lord God omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. Omniscient means he's all-knowing. So omnipotent, there isn't, uh, um, there isn't anything that his power cannot accomplish. All right. Next section will be verses 7 through 10. So it says, let us be glad and rejoice and and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Just turn back to um, verse 16. Right again, 
Uh, we're going to see uh, the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19 very shortly. But right before it happens in the sixth bowl here, we read in verse 15, again these red letters, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. And he says, Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment. Well, what is his garment? Well, it's just been explained to us that the garment here um, is the fine, clean, and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Well, we know that if we do a righteous act, that we have to give the, the glory to the Lord. Good place for an amen. amen. So we give the glory to the Lord. But again, the, the red verses that jump out right before the battle itself. So um, verse 9, then he said to me, right. Now blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And now John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, see that you do not do that. So now we know that who we have here is not the Lord Jesus Christ doing the speaking, but an angel. I am a fellow servant of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The Old Testament... um, Um, we have a contrast in these verses here of rejoicing over the destruction of the false church, who he calls a harlot, and now we're told that anybody is is blessed who's made themselves ready for for the wedding supper of the Lamb. This will be the most thrilling experience that a believer will ever have. We got several couples in the uh, fellowship right now, engaged, getting ready to get married, smiling all the time, because they're looking forward to something special. And um, to me, it's just a sign of the rapture, because as it was in the days of Noah, they were marrying and giving in marriage. So it's when they're, rapture takes place, you're not going to be expecting it. Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief. It's not going to be something that you say, well, today's the day, I can tell. But having said that, First Thessalonians 5 says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. You're children of the light, and you should be aware of the times of the seasons, because that'll keep you watching. And that's the one thing that the Lord doesn't give us, no man knows the day of the hour, he says, but I want you to be watching. And so what's happening right now in the Middle East um, is significant. Seventy years now, um, this year, for Israel being back in land. None of this means anything unless Israel's back in the land. So we, we find that when this event takes place, it will be the most glorious event any believer ever had. The church, that is the body of believers, all the way from Pentecost to the rapture, will be presented now to Christ as bride for a marriage. The marriage apparently takes place in heaven, uh, but not when most people think so. A lot of people think we've got to make a distinction between the judgment seat of Christ, that's talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, 
and uh, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. We don't find it being talked about till Revelation chapter 19. So it's an event that happens after the great tribulation period. Then he said, uh, well, let me finish my notes here. Notice that the Old Testament saints are not included. So there's a distinction here between the Old Testament saints. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And I'm quoting him right now. John the, uh, the Baptist designated himself as only a friend of the bridegroom. That would be Jesus. He said, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. And that's John 3, verse 29. The bride occupies a, a very unique relationship with Christ. You see, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. Um, turn with me to John 17 real quick. And just look at um, the Lord's Prayer. People think when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, that that's the Lord's Prayer. No, that's the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is actually found in John chapter 17. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6, all the way through to 19, he prays for the, the men that had left everything, the 12, the disciples. But beginning in verse uh, um, 29, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also those who will believe through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be one in us, Notice the plurality of the Trinity, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. Uh, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved them. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and I, and, and uh, these have known that you have sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now, we get back to the priority of love over information and knowledge. So, at the wedding banquet, <clears throat> it is a husband and wife relationship where we become, that was the Lord's Prayer, that, um, and that's when, when I do a wedding, uh, somewhere in the wedding, I when we're having the, the prayer at the end. I actually pray you guys came down here, two different, two people, but you leave as one. Because what, what happened here and what the Lord did here is a supernatural thing. And so when a person is um, in Christ, um, we're in the engagement period, so to speak, and we're waiting for the wedding to take place. But it's deeper than that. It would be like Joseph and Mary. They were betrothed, that was a word that was used. But that was such a serious commitment 
that if the betrothal was somehow broken, it was like a divorce. So here we have uh, what we've been, what really will be uh, one of the most monumental, the most monumental times since you gave your heart to the Lord, waiting for the wedding day to take place. So we go on to read, um, um, it will take place after the um, overthrow of Babylon. It can't take place while the, the harlot is there, the false church, pretending to be the bride of Christ, and that hasn't um, been resolved. Now that that's resolved, the wedding can take place. Let's pick up chapter 11, and here we come to where the Lord returns, uh, 11 through... Oh, let's go through 18. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Uh, We could quote a lot of scriptures here. All of Psalm 2 is about this event. Imagine, just, you only get past Psalm 1, and and already Psalm 2, you're talking about the Battle of Armageddon. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written which no one knew except himself. How interesting. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, this is the dipped in blood is, um, well, let's, let's, let's tie the old and new together. We've done this before, but this is how we learn. Just quickly go to um, Isaiah chapter 63. I opened it right up to it. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who is coming from Edom with dried garments from Basra? So here we have, I've been telling you over and over again, that Edom, Basra, and Selah, or not Selah. Um, yeah, Selah are all one and the same. And the question is, let's put it in more of a, we, you know the answer, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteous, mighty to save, why is your apparel red? And why is your garment like one who treads in the winepress? And the Lord says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garment. I have stained all my robes, for the day of my vengeance is here, and the year of my redeemed has come. Now remember that in chapter 14, it talks about three demons like frogs, one coming out of the devil, one coming out of the Antichrist, one coming out of the false prophets. And their job was to go to get the rulers of the world and bring them to the valley of Armageddon where the Antichrist already is. And we have the nations of the world now gathered in one place. And now flip over to John 1. This is, John has one purpose in writing his gospel and that is that he wants you to know that Jesus is God. So in John 1 verse 1, a verse you're very familiar with, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Go to chapter 20 of um, the Gospel of John. And um, again, stressing the point why he wrote his gospel. Verse 30 says, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. The Gospel of John only records seven miracles. But he sure did a whole lot more than that in his ministry. And uh, there are seven I am statements I am the Good Shepherd, I am the Way, the Truth, the Life, I am the Door so on and so forth. He says, but, in verse 31, these are written. John says, I picked these seven things out that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now I'll go to the very last chapter, 21, and we'll read the last two verses there. This is, this is John speaking. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written down one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Good place for an amen? Amen. So it's you know beyond human comprehension, um, the, the things um, that... The, the Lord has done. Back to um, Revelation 19. We read verse 13, now with a little bit more depth from the Old Testament. He was clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him with white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, And with it, he strikes the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. Again, that's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 63. And he has a name on his robe, and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, as we study Daniel, as great as Nebuchadnezzar was, as great as Alexander the Great was, as great as Darius and Cyrus and all these great kings were. They all had one thing in common. They had a kingdom that ruled the world, and it passed, and they died. Now, in contrast to that, we have the king of all kings. Here's the stone not cut without hands that smote the image that was made out of metal, and it crumbled like dust, and it blew away in the wind. And in its place rose this mountain. And it says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. And I wish I could take the next hour and just say forever and ever and ever. It has to happen. Do you realize that there's nothing that can change what I just said? Nothing. You say, well, I don't believe that. That doesn't change the thing. It's going to happen. Well, I don't, I don't believe Jesus is the only way to God. Well, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that's going to happen. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that, that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the, the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Now, uh, what we have in Israel, um, my friend Revi Litvin used to give a topic called the uniqueness of the land of Israel. And just geographically, where it's located, just how unique it really was. Um, remember at one time there really were lions and tigers and bears in Israel. And it was completely forced, the whole country. But what it is, is a migration route for all the birds from Africa to fly into Europe and Asia. And so every time we're there, without exception, we see thousands and thousands of birds just using the air currents to go up, to come down. A lot of times they're storks or different different kinds. Um, the fish farmers hate the pelicans because they can wipe out a whole fish farm real easy if they decide to land on the pond. <laughs> Um, but the fact that he calls for the birds for this feast is um, it, it fits because it's, it is the, the migration. Now we switch gears a little bit and we zero in on the on the end of Satan's reign. For we find, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Uh, they should have Psalm 2 in there, but they don't. Uh, the cross-reference here is uh, Revelation 16, 13 and 16. This is the battle of Armageddon. Now, the Antichrist does go to war and fight against many of these nations. But the actual battle that we're reading about right here never happens. They're just there. And um, again, Psalm 2 um, really puts it in perspective uh, that anybody thinks they can fight against the creator of all things. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the great armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. Boy, I'd like to see that on film. Grab that guy by the back of his neck. Along with the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. And he was deceived by those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The very first two that the Lord is interested in taking care of that go directly into the lake of fire, um, they will be there 1,000 years by themselves because Satan's going to be bound and cast. Satan will eventually get there as we, as we see this here. Uh, but demonic activity and deception. And let me make it real to you here tonight. Uh, when I drove up into the parking lot, I thought the kids were outside practicing. The deception of a game called Pokemon, which everybody goes, oh, it's an innocent game that you play with your, 
your iPad, you go around, you catch these little spirits, and you try to find out where they are. And, and I said, you're not going to receive this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. You have no idea what you're messing with. You have absolutely no idea of the deception that you're in. And I did it once before um, driving home. I saw all these kids gathered on a corner, and I knew what they were doing. So I stopped the car and got up. I just sort of tactfully made my way into the car. I said, hey, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, right, right over here somewhere there's a spirit. We're going to catch him. And I said, really? And I, I played dumb for a little bit. But I finally got around to, to saying, look, what you're dealing with, you have no idea. In my generation, it was Ouija boards and tarot cards and stuff like that. Seems innocent. But why do you think they call Satan cunning? and more sly than any of, the, any of the creatures. Well, that's because he is. And it's, it's the rage today. And they have no idea that it's a stepping stone for another step in that direction to be deceived to the point where you can be accused of being unloving for saying such a thing, because I was. But not without first getting out, my two sons were saying, I'm hoping that somebody in this little group here hears that what you're messing with is really serious stuff, and I had to leave it with that. So even though this is a very old book and who deceive those who dwell on on the face of the earth, you don't get deceived. Um, It's not hard to deceive. Satan has been studying the human psyche for 6,000 years. And when it came down to Job, he had it all figured out. He said, a man will give anything, skin for skin. When it comes down to his life, and then you'll get his attention. Skin for skin, a man will do anything for his skin. And it was a test for Job. And the Lord said, go for it. I'll let you touch him, but you can't kill him. God's still sovereign, but there's times he takes his hands off and lets Satan do his thing. That's the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, hands off. And Satan is doing his thing, and he's gone out to conquer the world. But who gets conquered? He gets conquered. Because you can't fight. Uh, when the Lord says the day of his, his wrath has come, it, it, it comes. They were cast alive, verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword who proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now these here... Um, will be resurrected in 1,000 years. That brings us to chapter 20. So in chapter 20, um, let's just read a couple of verses and I'll talk about um, the millennium and the different viewpoints that people have. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the 1,000 years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, here is where we get the word millennium. And um, people will say, well, it only occurs here uh, it only says uh, a thousand years in one verse. 
And uh, my answer to that is, how many times in God's word do you want it? Period, do you want it? Is two? Will that do it? Well, how about three? Here it clearly says that for the millennial reign, a thousand-year reign, um, let me give you the different views that are out there today. <clears throat> for years, in turn of the century, 1900s, um, post-millennialism, assumes that Christ would come at the conclusion of the thousand years. Man would bring in the kingdom by preaching the gospel. Uh, This was an optimistic view which prevailed at the turn of the century. At that time, it looked like there might be a great worldwide turning to Christ and the world would be converted. Uh, This viewpoint has become obsolete as it could not weather the first half of the 20th century with two world uh, world wars, a global depression, a rise in communism. And if I would add the main one today, we have Islam as the fastest growing religion in the world today. So one of the best known post-millennialists, this might surprise some of you, is Pat Robertson. So when I teach on a subject, I'd like you to know who actually believes this, and uh, from the 700 Club. And the reason, one of the reasons that he ran for president at that one time is he believed that when the world would be evangelized, Jesus will return. And it just made sense to him. I have a global worldwide network. I have the influence. And um, I don't remember how many years ago that was that he ran. Um, But... um, Luke 18, verse 8 says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, the Lord says just the opposite. And then in Matthew 24, he says, Unless I return, no flesh will be saved. Um, That's post-millennialism. Amillennialism has become popular only in recent years and largely uh, supplemented post-millennialism with the prefixed A in front of it, meaning None. There is none. There is no belief in the millennium at all. The argument is that this is the only place that is mentioned in Scripture, so they take a non-literal view. If they spiritualize the millennium, they have to spiritualize the whole book, and most amillennialists today are from the mainline Protestant and Catholic churches. The church that I came out of believed in um, amillennium that were, um, that there, it's not to be taken literal. The last view is premillennialism, and that's the view that we take here, that it is um, to be taken, just like the Lord said, um, literally, uh, at face value, uh, no millennium until Jesus comes. These verses must be taken literally, like the rest of the book. And again, it ends with, the warning. Um, boy, could I get sidetracked here, but I don't have enough time. All right, uh, well, let's dive into the um, verse, pick it up in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and to the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. 
And again, on Sunday, I made the point that people will be alive, and Matthew 25 comes into play here, where you have to separate the sheep from the goats. And the ones that are saved get to go in. They're the ones that are blessed that made it to the 1,335th day. But the ones that took the mark of the beast, uh, the Lord says they will go into everlasting torment and contempt and shame. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Now this is the first resurrection. And then it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. And they shall be priests of God in Christ, and he shall reign with him for a thousand years. So here we have... um, Uh, Satan, now bound, he will be released in the pit. The beast and the false prophet are already in the lake of fire. And um, this was actually one of the promises that Jesus made to one of the seven churches, that you will not be hurt by the second death. Well, what is the second death? We'll be coming up to that uh, in just a bit on the second death. Verse 6. That promise was thrones reigning, and that was made to the church of Thyatira. We switch now, and um, the thousand years has come, and a thousand years has gone. Um, There's so many places that we could go to that you're familiar with in the Old Testament. The lion will lay down with the lamb. When somebody dies at the age of 100, they go, oh, what a pity. He was just a kid. And he was only 100 years old. So longevity of life will be restored. Romans 8 says the curse will be removed from the earth. No more mosquitoes camping. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and um, the fear, the natural fear that's in the animal kingdom uh, will be gone. You know, your, 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 your pets that time can be a lion. It says a child will play by the cobra's den with no fear at all of, um, of being harmed in any way, shape, or form. And um, the Lord will rule with a, a rod of iron. And if I understand the parables correctly, we have administrative roles in government. He said, if you've been faithful in just little things now, he's testing us. Is this guy going to be faithful now? And he's watching our life, just a, just a blurb. And um, he says, those who have been faithful in little, I will cause them to be over 10 cities. I'll cause them to be faithful over much. So these Sunday school teachers that gave their life this last week, they're, 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 they're stashing it. <laughs> they're putting it away, and they're being wise. The wisest thing you can do is invest in the kingdom. There's no portfolio out there that can match it because it's temporary. No matter how big it is, no matter how much success or fame you have, in the end, there's that dash. I can't wait to speak at Phyllis's funeral uh, tomorrow because I've, um, she came up to me one day after being here for years and said, Dwight, you don't remember me. But we go back to... Uh, um, the first assembly with Pete Cashel. And I said, you go back that far? 
She said, yeah, you were the only hippie in the church. <laughs> Everybody knew who you were. You stuck out like a sore thumb. And um, so we reminisced when I went to visit her of, of the, the old days. But um, faithfully walking with the Lord, she was 84 years old. You, know, you don't think she's got treasure stashed away in heaven? She sure does. So um, it's a joy. And I, I've said this often, and I mean it with all my heart. I'd rather do a funeral any day of the week, any day, over a wedding. Don't get me wrong, I rejoice with those who rejoice. Praise the Lord for those that are getting married. But I got a captive audience at a funeral. And um, the wisest man who ever lived says, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth, and it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a Green Bay Packer football game. Dwight's translation. But it gets their attention. And I said, this is the wisest man who ever lived that said this. Think it through. Why is a funeral better than a party? He gives the answer, because the living will lay it to heart. You see, we're living. And there's somebody that's just a shell up there. And it's one of the few times you think, what about me? You don't think about that at a Packer game. You don't think, what about my mortality at a Packer game? We just want the Pack to win, period. But where you're serious and you think about it, the wisest man who ever lives says, no, it's better to be at a funeral. Because the real important issues in life come out at a funeral. And the decisions that we make. Funerals are for the living, not for the dead. When I was leaving, um, now I'm getting too sidetracked. I've got to be able to finish this here. So back to, um, back to verse 7. The thousand years has come to an end. And Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to the battle, whose numbers as the sand of the sea. Before God is going to enter into eternity. Now we're talking eternity. Now we're not talking the kingdom anymore. Now we're talking about going into eternity. Um, he wants to make sure that you exercise your own free will, that you want to be there. Up until that time, he's been ruling the the world with what? With a rod. He enforces righteousness. Not like today. It's enforced during the millennium. And I'm sure that'll be part of some of our responsibilities. But now he has to provide an alternative. That's the only reason he left Satan and didn't throw him into the lake of fire. Um. Adam and Eve had to make a choice. They could walk with the Lord of their own free will, but there really there was no other alternative, was there? So the Lord allowed the temptation to take place, and man, as it says in the Bible, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Oh, if I just was brought up with the right family and had the right parents and wasn't abused as a kid, my dad was an alcoholic, then I would have turned out okay. No, you wouldn't have. Because now you're living in a perfect environment. Now you have the perfect ruler ruling over you. And the curse has been removed. And everything is perfect. And when given a choice and Satan is let loose, what happens? People prove once and for all that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. And given a choice, many of them will choose to go after and go with the devil. 
This always blows my mind when I read it. Then he went out on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. So now he's gathered all these people, uh, just like he gathered and seduced one-third of the angels. And uh, so they go up and they surround the saints at Jerusalem, the beloved city, and fire came down out of God from heaven and devoured them. It's over, just like the Battle of Armageddon. Just like that, it's over. This is what you guys want? You choose death, death you get. Now, we finally get to my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They've been there for a thousand years. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Nobody gets away with anything. Um, they caught one of the, uh, the guards in Argentina from Auschwitz and um, living, living high in the hog. But the IDF finally caught up with them. And they, 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 they took him to Israel and uh, dealt with him accordingly. And if they didn't catch him there, they're going to get caught here. Everybody's going to get their day in court. So then verse 11, we'll finish up the chapter. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat in it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. This reminds me of when Jesus first takes the book out of the Father's hands in chapter 5. It's the book that he had that says, that nobody could even look at it, except, and then John began to weep because nobody. It was it was the title deed to planet Earth, and John blow, just blows up and he starts sobbing uncontrollably. Nobody nobody can take the book and reclaim Earth back again. Nobody can do it. And we have a sign right outside the store here that says, "Weep not. Behold, the lion and the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the book." and to open its scrolls. And then everybody starts singing. And um, um, verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was called the Book of Life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the book. Gang, it's all being written down. I mean, if we have the technology today to instantly record anything, videotape it, record it, whatever, and we can do that, how much more does the Lord have every word we ever spoke, every thought we ever thought, is all written down in the book. And you can't, you can't, you can't go stand and go, uh-uh, I didn't do that. You know, that now he'll put it on the big screen. <laughs> and there you are, doing that very thing. The books are open, and they were judged according to the things written in their book. And you can't say anything other than guilty as charged. I was guilty as charged this week. Did I tell this story already? About getting my speeding ticket this week? Did I tell that one yet? Oh, I didn't tell you? All right, I'll tell it. Um... I was coming back from um, Menards and and uh, no from yeah no from Walmart and there's a stretch, but it's a 25 
And I, I saw this officer following me for the longest way. And um, he finally turned on the lights. And uh, he, he pulls me over. And um, the irony of this is in my BC days, I was always carrying some illegal substance somewhere in, in the vehicle. And I was always paranoid. I mean, always paranoid. If I saw a cop coming this way, I was paranoid. Now when I see the lights go on, I go, oh boy, I got a God of wonders right here. So I knew I was probably speeding. And he said, um, he comes over and he goes, um, uh, I got you doing 40 in a 25. And I said, if you say so. That's all I said. I said, if you say so, then I'm sure you're right. I just left it at that. And he says, well, you know, I'm going to give you a warning today. So then he goes back and he starts checking the plates and they don't match up. You see, when we bought the truck, we forgot to put on the new plates. They're sitting in the back seat. So he's spending all this time thinking, is this guy a crook? Does he steal this thing or what's going on? Finally comes and says, I need your registration. I said, well, I'm not sure where it is. And he, he finally gets it, and all of a sudden the lights go on. And I, I look in the back, and there's the license plates. So I grab him. He's trying to figure everything out. And I come out, and I have a license plate in his hand. And I just go <laughs> like that. And he goes, okay. So I explain, okay, now that we're past, I'm just going to get a, a warning and all that kind of stuff. This is a church truck, and I'm the pastor of the church, and I'm on my way coming back from there. I would never say that before, but I'm setting himself up because I have a seeking and finding God on my lap, and I'm, I'm about to give it to him, and I want him to read it. So I said, you know what? You guys are getting such a bad rap today. I want you to know that there's people who really appreciate who you are and what you're doing, and I want to thank you for that. And what I was really doing, I meant it, but I was buttering up because I really wanted him to take the book. <laughs> So he said, oh, you're right, people don't say that too much. And I said, do you take this book and read it? And he said, yeah, thank you very much. I think it was a divine appointment. So now that if I go more past my time, it's because I had to tell that story. And I didn't have any points taken away, and he left me off with a warning. I did have my seatbelt on. <laughs> okay, verse 13, the, the, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death at Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his work. I was guilty, and he let me off. Was I guilty of doing 40 to 25? Yeah. And I deserved a ticket, but he showed mercy and grace. He said, I'm just going to give you a warning. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now this is a second death. What does that mean? It means you're born once, and you die, and then you're resurrected only to stand before the great white throne judgment. You died in your sins. And judgment day has come. And nobody is going to escape it. Either you go to heaven or you go to hell. You can only go to heaven by the grace of God and what he's done for you. You can't have any excuses of your environment. You're just a sinner like we all are. But if you insist on thinking, well, I've done some pretty good things in my life. I'm not that bad of a guy. Um... That's the devil's lie. This day will prove otherwise. And you will die again, except you don't die. It says the worm will never die. And um, anyone not found written in in the lake of fire, uh, the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. 19 and 20. As we go through these chapters, we studied the Battle of Armageddon, the wedding feast of the Lamb, 
the beginning of the thousand-year millennial reign, the duration of the thousand-year millennial reign, um, Satan's seduction of planet Earth, and people are actually seduced and following him, and finally ending it up so that we can now, on Sunday, uh, we'll go right into, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The millennium is over. Now we're entering into eternity. How many chapters do we have in the Bible about eternity? Two. And we will close our study on Sunday as we've made it through Daniel. And then a week from tonight, we will be in uh, Hosea. Amen? How about a hallelujah instead? More appropriate tonight, don't you think? Hallelujah. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, how grateful we are for your grace and your mercy and for your word. And Lord, we pray tonight as we've gone through these chapters that we see that it makes perfect sense and um, we understand why you do not want this book messed with in any way, shape, or form and to take it as it was meant to be, um, a literal book and uh, the most prophetic book in the New Testament tied in with the most prophetic book of Daniel in the Old So I pray you bless us as we go tonight. We're grateful for our salvation, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.